Welcome to Conversations for Life, a marriage and family podcast from Cross Life with hosts Jonathan and Kathleen. Each episode, we sit down and talk about the things that matter most to those that matter most to you. We're so glad you're with us today. Please pull up a chair and join in the conversation. Hi, everyone. Thanks for joining us for another conversation here at Conversations for Life. Uh, Today, we are blessed to have a distinguished guest with us. Professor Nancy Piercy is the author of the recently released book, Love Thy Body, Answering Hard Questions About Life and Sexuality. She's also a professor and a scholar in residence at Houston Baptist University, right here in our own backyard, and editor-at-large at, uh, editor of the Piercy Report. Her earlier books include The Soul of Science, Saving Leonardo, Finding Truth, and two ECPA Gold Medallion Award winners, Total Truth and How Now Shall We Live, which is co-authored with Harold Fickett and Chuck Colson. She's a former agnostic, and she's spoken at universities such as Princeton, Stanford, USC, and Dartmouth, and was hailed in The Economist as America's preeminent evangelical Protestant female intellectual. We've also found out in the process of getting to know her that that Professor Piercy and her husband um, went to the same seminary as us. We're all graduates of Covenant Seminary. So, uh, Professor Piercy, thank you so much for being on today. Thank you for having me. I appreciate it. Um, so I, I first came across your work uh, through your most recent book, Love Thy Body, which I just referenced and we'll have, of course, on our website, uh, because I think what the Bible says about the human body and how it directs the way we think about our bodies and we treat our bodies and, and, the, and how we decide ethical issues, all these are, are things I think are of a vital importance for us as believers. And so I was so glad to discover your book because, quite frankly, I haven't found much really good Protestant work being done on, on the body and, and, and worldview of the body and teaching about ethics of the body. And so um, I'd love just to hear you speak about, you know, what are some of these issues that you write about in the book that, that you think are so vital for believers from, from Scripture? Well, it's, it's surprising to many Christians to hear this, but the Christian answer to so many of the cutting-edge moral issues of our day is that the Bible teaches a very high view of the body and that secularism actually teaches a low view of the body. Mm. And this is one of the things that we can use to help show people that the Christian view is not only true, but it's actually attractive, it's appealing, it's something that we could want want to be true. And mm. it's best to explain it by just jumping in with an example. So um, let's start with abortion. Um, abortion is a, one of the biggest issues on our radar these days. And if you look at the secular view... It's actually, it's actually based on a very low view of the body. It's based on a kind of a division, in fact, between the body and the person. Here's, here's an example that I give in my book, Love Thy Body. There was a British broadcaster who wrote an article saying that she had always been proudly pro-choice until mm. she became pregnant with her own baby. And then she says she began to struggle. She says, I was calling the life inside me a baby because I wanted it. But if I hadn't wanted it, I would have thought of it as just a group of cells that it was okay to kill. And to her credit, she realized that didn't make sense, Mm. that a fetus doesn't become a baby just because somebody wants it. And she began to research the subject. And she said she reached this conclusion after several months. She says, I have to agree, you know, in terms of science, I have to agree that life begins conception. And then she says, but 
in terms of moral rights, perhaps the fact of life is not important. It's whether that life has grown enough to start becoming a person. Mm, so yeah, how, uh, she, how has she justified abortion here? She's justified it by saying you can split the human being into two parts. If you can be human life at one point, but not a person until sometime later, then clearly these are two different things. And so essentially what the arguments for abortion are based on is the idea that, okay, fine, the fetus is human. Most bioethicists today agree. The Christians need to realize that. Most professional bioethicists today agree that the mm -hmm. fetus is biologically, genetically, physiologically human. The evidence from DNA and genetics is too strong to deny it. Mm, yeah. How do they get around it? They say, well, it's a, the fetus is human, but it's not a person. And you don't become a person until you reach a certain level of mental abilities, certain level of cognitive functioning and self-awareness. So what are they saying, though? I mean, in essence, they're saying being human is not enough for human Right. That that's, even if you're human, uh, if the fetus is human, it's just a disposable piece of matter. It can be killed. Right. For, right. It can be killed for any reason or no reason. It can be tinkered with genetically. It can be used in experiments and research. It can be picked through for sellable body parts like plants. Right. Yeah. And then thrown out with a medical waste. So what we have to help people to see is that. The Christian view is actually based on a much higher view of what it means to be human. We're, we are saying that if you're human, you are a person and you mm -hmm. have all the moral rights and legal protections due to a full person. And so the, the way to, to sort of persuade people of the Christian view is not just to go out there with a negative message on abortion. It's wrong. Don't do it. It's a sin. But to help them to realize that the secular view is based on a very low view of what it means to be human, that, that mm -hmm. being human is not enough for human rights, and that Christianity has a much higher view of the status and dignity of the human person. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And could you elaborate more? You know, In your book, one of the foundational principles you talk about, especially to help us understand these key ethical issues, is our tendency to create a division between the body and the soul or the body and the mind. And this uh, division, this tearing apart of the person, this false dichotomy um, has historical roots and it persists today. And you use the image of a building with two stories, an upper story and a lower story. Could you elaborate on that some? Yeah, it all started with a divided concept of truth. If you're, uh, if, you, if you're studying at the university today, you often hear the term the fact-value split. And what that means is that, um, well, the, um, the people like Francis Schaeffer use the, the metaphor of two stories in a building. So in the lower story, you have science and facts, and those are supposedly objective and universally valid. That means no matter what your private beliefs are, you need to accept the facts of science. Mm -hmm. But... Uh, and that's something that I would say that's that's even taught in schools today. You know, you, you see some backlash about that sometimes. Children in schools are taught, you know, facts are objective and opinions are just completely subjective. And you have to know the difference between the two, whereas, you know, a, a more integrated approach would say that opinions can also be, or values or, you know, beliefs can also be true. 
Exactly. I have seen that as well. I've seen, um, I've seen excerpts from, from public schools where they're trying to teach kids the, the difference between facts and opinion. And I understand what they're trying to do, but what they're right. really communicating is that values, uh, to use the two-story in a building metaphor, they're basically saying values are in the upper story, and they're private, they're subjective, they're relativistic. And so this, this is sometimes summarized as the fact-value split. Mm-hmm. And it's, it's been one of the most um, powerful ways of trying to discredit Christianity in the modern world. Because, well, what, what goes in the upper story? Anything that cannot be stuffed into a test tube and studied right. in a microscope. So all of religion, all of morality is put in the upper story. And this is actually the theme of my earlier book, Total Truth. It's helping people to understand that this is the main strategy that secularists use to discredit and marginalize the claims of Christianity. By they don't have to argue against it, against it not being true. What they can say is it's not really even true or false at all. It's just private opinion, and so it's just subjective. And so it, it's what you're pointing to is that the view of truth then permeates every other field. Because I mean, truth, <laughs> truth is central. Right. Right. Yeah. And, and so the same the same divide then appears in the moral issues as a body person split, like we saw with abortion, where you as, as long as you're just a body, you're just you know biologically human, you have no moral status and you have no right to legal protection. But when you become a person, then suddenly you have moral status, suddenly the, the law applies to you. So, of course, the, the biggest problem with that is nobody can decide with, where to draw the line. Right, right. because a matter of opinion, it's quite frankly. is totally arbitrary. Yeah, yeah. which yeah. you actually do a good job of showing in your book how frightening that is. Right, every bioethicist out there draws the line at a different place because it is based only on his private views and values. So some say, some bioethicists will say, well, the fetus becomes a person sometime before birth. But others will say, no, it doesn't become a person until after birth. The idea being that some uh, genetic defects don't show up until after birth. And so even prominent people like the discoverers of the DNA uh, double helix structure, like Watson, uh, James Watson says, well, we should, we should wait three days before deciding that the fetus, the, the, the newborn is a person. And Peter Singer, who's at, uh, an, an ethicist at, at uh, Princeton University, says, well, even three years of age is a gray area. Mm-hmm. And that maybe the stu- you know, parents should have a right, <laughs> have a right to kill their children okay. if, they, if they find that they have genetic deficiencies sometime later. So it's a completely arbitrary. You're, you were right yeah. in choosing that word. It's completely arbitrary now. And there's no way... And basically, what's going to happen is the state will step in. Whoever has the most power will end up stepping right. in. It'll be, exactly. it'll be a power issue. Exactly, yeah. Well, and thankfully, at present, uh, most people would not consider a three-year-old to be a gray area. But, you know, we've seen in, in many historical settings where ideology really can drive crazy things, you know, all kinds of um, things that we would have previously thought unthinkable. Um, but well, we see it, we see it, we see it in the assisted suicide debate, you know, euthanasia, yeah. you know, cause, because there again, um, the body person dualism is what's driving secular ethics. What secular bioethicists are saying 
is if you lose a certain level of cognitive functioning, mm-hmm. if you're mentally disabled, yeah. then you are no longer a person, even though you're obviously still human. And so at that point, many bioethicists say you are only a body. You are only human. You can be unplugged. Your treatment can be withheld. Your food and water can be discontinued. Yeah, and right. you your organs can be harvested. So, see, once again, merely being human is not enough for human rights. And so this, this mm. is the, that dualistic view, which, which is denigrating our status as human beings. And Christians, again, our response to that is to deny, to deny that dualism and to say, no, no, a human being is an integrated unity. We are embodied spirits. Yeah. Body yeah. and Spirits and both of them are equally true and equally important. Yeah, and I want to get into that in a in a second, talking about what the what the Bible says. But I also wanted to mention, and you and you touch on this in the book. Um, you know, we we can kind of think that oh, we're a very materialistic, uh, a very materialistic culture in the sense that we believe in the material world. We kind of think anything besides that maybe doesn't exist or isn't really important. And, um, you know, we're very, we're, we're scientific, we're empirical. And yet the interesting thing is that, um, you know, the, the issues you've just been talking about are like pretty anti-science, you know? And so uh, we're really um, devaluing what we claim to think, what we claim is the ultimate in reality. The ultimate of reality is the material world. And yet we're denying uh, what the material world plainly tells us and shows us. And so, as you said, it's, it's really devaluing of the physical, even as we claim to hold up the physical on, as an idol. Yeah, that's a good point. Because, uh, well, let, let's go to another example. Um, in my book, I ha- Love Thy Body, I have uh, a chapter on the hookup culture. And that's right. one where it's very common to hear Christians say, well, you know, people who are involved in the hookup culture have too too high a view of physical sex, and they have too high a view of the body. And what I show in in my book is that no, it's the opposite. They have too low a view of the body. Um, right. I include I include several quotes. They're very poignant um, from college students themselves. Mm, yeah. Here's one, here's one from um, a girl named Alicia. She says, hookups are very scripted. You learn to turn everything off except your body, and you make yourself emotionally invulnerable. So there's that split again, you know, the person versus the body. In order to be involved in the hookup culture, you almost have to split off your body from who you are as a whole person because the, 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 you know, the script is, that you can be involved physically without any hint of love or commitment. Mm. In, um, there was an art, uh, another quote. Uh, it's from Rolling Stone magazine, and it was a it was a drummer from Austin, Texas, by the way. <laughs> and he says, um, he said, "Sex is just a piece of body touching another piece of body. It is mm-hmm. existentially meaningless." And so. What yeah. you guys, you got, you guys will appreciate this. There was um, one mildly negative review of my book by a Christian philosopher of all things, who said, "Oh no, uh, materialism has a much higher view of the body. It has an exalted view of the body, since it says that the body is all that exists." And he didn't understand. Well, he hadn't actually read the book. 
Oh, well, yeah, there's that. <laughs> I was reviewing the book, um, quote unquote, uh, after listening to a podcast instead of actually reading it. And in my book, I make it very clear that the, the secular worldview, although it says matter is all that exists, that does not mean it has a high view of matter because it has it really says that matter has no higher purpose, no higher dignity. Uh, that in, in particular, that human beings, you know, your body is treated as purely physical, driven by physical impulses and instincts, cut off from the rich inner life of the whole person. And so, in a, it's, it's ironic that materialists claim that they have a high view of the body, but they really have a low view because they says they they are claiming it has no higher purpose or dignity that it's you know just a piece of body touching another piece of body existential right. meaningless so it the christian view again in terms of sexual ethics we should be promoting the christian worldview not merely in negative terms of you know here's here's where here's where the sins are don't do these things but that it is in the christian ethic is incarnational what you do with your body is meant to be in harmony with who you are as a whole person. And mm -hmm. so it leads people to this inner harmony and in, in a sense of purpose to our bodies that's, that's higher than just physical instincts. Well, I think, um, Professor Pierce, you know, one of the things that, that strikes me, and you bring it on your book as well, is I think for Christians to be good to know, I think a lot of us lack historical perspective. But the truth is, I think, you know, within Christianity, quite frankly, there's been, you know, not even talking about secular culture, but even within Christianity, historically, I think it's, it's safe to say there's been a, a fairly large segment of the Christian church that has held to, I would say, an unbiblical view of the body and a very negative view of the body as well. You know, going back to the Greeks, of course, and how kind of Greek philosophy uh, intermingled with the early church, and then that leads into the medieval age, and you get a lot of the aesthetic, aesthetic practices and a very kind of otherworldly view of the faith and denial of, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm speaking in broad strokes here, but uh, in some regards, a, a denial of, of, you know, the importance of the physical body and the, and the creative world that God made. So I'd love, you know, if you could, for, for, for the average person out there, just speak to how, how, how do we see this strain of a a sort of a you know a non-body affirming slash even non-creation affirming uh, theology even from earliest ages in the church and and how it kind of has shaped where we are today. That's a big question, so I don't feel like you have to answer all of that. <laughs> right, but you you're absolutely right. Um, one reason that we have a hard time answering the secular ethics mm. is that we've lost mm. touch with our own heritage. Um, we yeah, that's really good. That's a great point. We tend to have a similar split. You know, when Schaefer talked about the upper and lower story, we have an upper lower story. We call it the sacred secular split. Right. One of my students um, put it this way. She said, growing up in the church, I was always taught spirit good, body bad. Right. I, I've actually had those, you know, I, I was not raised in the church, but I've talked to a number of Christians who were deeply traumatized by that, even if it wasn't, you know, sort of, it really hurt them because they didn't know what to do with themselves. Good, good point. Yeah, I agree with you. And again, I, I like to take people back to the early church. And the early church was born into an ancient Greek and Roman culture that devalued the material world, just like modern secularism does. 
though for very different reasons. Right, right. The early church faced philosophies like Gnosticism and Platonism that treated this world as the realm of evil and corruption. In fact, Gnosticism even taught that this world was created by a low-level deity, that there were several mm. levels, yeah. and that this world was created by an evil god, because no self-respecting god would get his... Right. <laughs> dirty. His hands dirty in this mess. <laughs> right, mucking about with matter. And the Gnosticism taught that the body was the prison house of the soul. That was a common mm. phrase, prison house of the soul. And that the goal of salvation was to escape the physical realm and leave mm. it behind. Well, in this context, historically, Christianity was nothing short of revolutionary because it taught that the material world was created by the supreme deity, a good God. Right. And therefore, it is intrinsically good. You know, the fall does not negate that. It mm. is intrinsically good. Yes. But at the time, Christianity's greatest scandal actually was the incarnation. It was the mm. idea that that right. same deity had actually entered into the material world and taken on a physical body. So the incarnation is the ultimate affirmation of the dignity of the human body. And what's more, when Jesus was executed on a Roman cross, we might say he did escape the prison house of the soul, as Gnosticism taught we should aspire to do. Right. But what did he do then? <laughs> he rose from the he rose from the dead physically. He went back to it. <laughs> yeah. Came back, right, in a physical resurrection. So this to the Greeks at the time, this was not spiritual progress. <laughs> this, was, this was regress. Who would want to come back to the realm of the body? So the whole idea of a bodily resurrection was utter foolishness to the Greeks, as Paul writes. And what will happen at the end of time? God's not going to scrap the material world as if he made a mistake the first time around. Right. That he's going to restore it and renew it, creating the new heavens and a new earth. Mm. So from the beginning, the Apostles' Creed has affirmed the resurrection of the body. Mm. What we have to help people realize is that this is an astonishingly high view of the physical world. There's nothing like it in any other religion or philosophy. Mm. Yeah. Well, and that's also why it's so key to remember the whole arc of redemptive history and just the, the story of uh, the world. You know, creation does start it. That's the beginning. And then the fall. And then it's redemption. And then, we, you know, we long for consummation when Jesus returns. But if you just focus on you know, we're sinners, we're bad, and Jesus saves us, then you've you've missed that foundation of creation. And so relating to the body, you know, the, the body is fallen. Um, our, our very cells, you know, um, every atom in the universe is is affected in some, to some degree by the fall, but that doesn't erase the goodness of creation and of our bodies um, because that was the original design and, and that still stands. Yeah, Sh Francis Schaefer used to say a lot, um, the gospel message does not begin with the fall. It does not begin with, you're a sinner, you need to get saved. Right. The gospel message starts with creation. You were created mm -hmm. in the image of God, and you have great value and dignity, and that is not erased by the fall. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 
I think it would be good for us to get into some of the more cutting edge issues too, like homosexuality and transgenderism, because uh, one of the things that people have found most helpful in my book, Love Thy Body, is showing that the same denigration of the body is what explains the secular ethic on these other cutting edge issues. For yeah. example, homosexuality, um, people don't often realize that it too, the, the, it too rests on the devaluation of the body. I mean, if you think of it this way, no one really denies, no one, that on the level of biology, physiology, anatomy, and chromosomes, males and females are counterparts to one another. That that's right. not, the, the, the human sexual and reproductive system is just designed that way. Mm-hmm. So when people embrace a same-sex identity, they are implicitly contradicting that design. They are saying, why should the structure of my body inform my identity? Or right. why should my biological sex as male or female have any say in my moral choices? Mm-hmm. So here's where we can help people see that this is a profoundly disrespectful view of the body. And even by accepting that your mind can con- your mind can contradict your biology, it leads to inner fragmentation and self-alienation. And so this is how we can help people see that the secular view is actually resting on a very low view of the body. And what Christians are saying is is that we should respect our body. We should let our body inform our identity. It does have intrinsic purpose and meaning. It is meant to give us clues to our identity. Yeah. The, The... you know, basically, you know, people say, "Okay, fine. Where did this, where did this low view of the body even come from?" And I, I like to point them to um, there's an outspoken lesbian named Camille Paglia. I'm, I'm sure you guys have read some of her work. I think maybe the name sounds vaguely familiar. Yeah, a lot of conservatives like her because she's a little bit iconoclastic. She's, but she is a lesbian and she is sort of libertarian, and. And here's how she puts it. She, how, so how does she defend homosexuality? She says, uh, here's why a lot of conservatives like her, because she does say, um, she, she does re- reject the postmodern notion that sex is just a social construction. She says, no, mm. no, no. N- nature made us male and female. Humans are a sexually reproducing species. But she's a secular person says she believes that nature is product of mindless material forces. Mm-hmm. And therefore, it has no intrinsic purpose that, right. we are morally, that we are morally obligated to respect. Well, as Richard Dawkins likes to put it, your body is just a meat machine, right? It's just yeah. a meat yeah. And if it's just a piece of matter, then the mind is free to use it any way it wants. And listen to this quote from Camille Paglia. She says, nature made us male and female, but why not defy nature? And this was mm. a she says, fate, not God, has given us this flesh. We have absolute claim to our bodies and may do with them as we see fit. Mm. So she's, she's defending homosexuality by saying, our bodies are products of mindless, purposeless forces. They have no intrinsic purpose. 
They give us no clue to our identity. We may do with them as we see fit. And this, and this gives us, again, a chance to explain the Christian view in a positive way. Because what we can explain is that for Christian, nature is nature does have a purpose. The technical term there is teleological. Right, right. Right, it comes from that Greek word telos, which means um, that nature is designed for a purpose. And it's evident to observation that living things are structured for a purpose, that eyes are for seeing, ears are for hearing, <laughs> wings are flying, and fins are for swimming. So, and even the development of the entire organism is directed by an inbuilt genetic plan or blueprint. So science itself tells us that nature exhibits a design, a plan, an order, a purpose. And what Christians are saying is that when we live in harmony with that purpose, then we will be happier and healthier. And in Love Thy Body, I actually give several examples of people who turn from homosexuality through this specific insight, through valuing their body. There was a young woman named Jean, Jean Lloyd, and she had lived as a lesbian for several years. Today she is married, married to a man. <laughs> you have to say that now. You're married to a man and has two children. And in an article that she wrote, Jean said, the turning point came when I finally came to trust that God made me female for a reason. Mm-hmm. And I'm to honor my body by living in accord with the creator's design. So that's the language we should be using when we talk to non-Christians. We should be talking about trusting God, that we honor our body, that we want to live in accord with our body's design. So it's not, it's not like you said earlier, Kathleen, it's not just a negative message. It's a message of recognizing the purpose. That our bodies have a purpose. It's not just a meat machine. It has a purpose. It's meant to inform my identity. It's meant to give us an understanding of why we are male or female and how our identity can be in harmony with our body. Hi, friends. Our conversation with Professor Nancy Piercy was so intriguing and interesting that we wanted to do it over two episodes. So please come back next week where we will finish our discussion with her on the vital importance of understanding how God made our bodies and how this informs the way we should live our lives and interact with the cultural messages around us. I hope you've enjoyed it. Please come back next week. We look forward to seeing you then. Take care and God bless. Thanks so much for joining us today. We hope you were blessed. If you'd like to find out more information or get additional resources, please visit our website at www.crosslifetoday.org. You can also find us on Facebook as Cross Life Resources and on Instagram. Until next time, take care and God bless.